Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening and welcome to The Source. I'm Kaylin Collins. Tonight, two more hostages have been freed, 17 days after they were kidnapped by Hamas. We've just obtained new video of the two Israeli women who were released, taken to a medical center in Tel Aviv tonight. They are 79-year-old Nareet Cooper, whom you can see here, and 85-year-old Yeheved Lifshitz. Both were kidnapped along with their husbands from, with their husbands from the kibbutz near Oz, near Gaza, on that deadly day. Their husbands, I should note, were not released tonight and instead do still remain captives of Hamas. These two women were released, we are told, to the Red Cross at the Rafah crossing. That's between Egypt and Gaza. This happened just in the last several hours. And this news comes three days after the release of Judith and Natalie Renan. That was last Friday, and now they are expected to be back on their way to the United States this week. Over 200 hostages do still remain in Gaza tonight, a number that we do know includes American citizens. CNN has now learned that the White House, meantime, in the background of all of this, is quietly urging Israel to delay its invasion of Gaza in order to buy more time to potentially get more hostages out. The White House has been extremely careful with how they've been talking about this in recent days. That much was evident as President Biden today, as he was speaking with reporters about this, quickly corrected himself after the mere mention of a ceasefire. Why did you? We should get. We should have a ceasefire. It's not a ceasefire. We should have those hostages released, and then we can talk. A White House spokesperson also followed up on that clarification on CNN earlier, saying that the Biden administration does not believe that this is the time for a ceasefire. Now, just to fill you in on those two women, those two hostages whose families are obviously so grateful tonight that they are safe and that they are now in Israel in the care of the IDF. What we are told about sources, how this all came down, is there was some behind-the-scenes negotiating happening between the Egyptians and the Qataris. That's what sources told us. Nareet Cooper and Yeheved Lifshitz are now at a medical center. They are undergoing checkups, obviously, to make sure that, that they are okay. That's something that we saw happen with Judith and Natalie Renan when they were released last Friday. Their family members are waiting for them, we are told. But of course, this news is bittersweet for a lot of families out there, a lot of the relatives of other hostages who still have no news about their loved ones. It is believed to be 218 hostages that are still in Gaza tonight. Anderson Cooper joins me now live from Tel Aviv. And Anderson, I know you got to speak with Yeheved's daughter, Sharon. What did she tell you? She was, uh, she's obviously overjoyed uh, about the news about her, her mom. She was actually at the airport about to board a flight to come here uh, to Tel Aviv to see her mom. Uh, she's going to be landing shortly if she hasn't already gotten here. Um, she's obviously still thinking very much about her father who is in custody and all the other hostage families. Let's listen in. <laughs> it's impossible to describe. My mom, I, I think she has a good smile. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm so delighted, but my heart is with, you know, this is a small 
ray of light in a big story that is still unfolding. My father is there. There's so many other people. We are waiting for good news about everyone. My heart is with all my uh, friends and loved ones and everybody else that are still hostage. I think this is a great sign that we are moving in the right direction. Your, your father is still being held hostage. Have you had any information about him? I know I don't know any information on this. I'm waiting to hear uh, what my mom says and what I, I do not know. And Caitlin, when I asked her what her message was to all the other families of hostages, many from her community, from, from near Oz, uh, she started to cry. And she clearly is thinking very much of them tonight uh, and the pain that they are experiencing and very much wants all, all of these hostages to come home. Yeah, it's such a difficult moment to, to be so overjoyed for your own family. And at least, I mean, for her, it's still bittersweet because her father is still being held tonight. And Anderson, I know, I mean, you mentioned near Oz, the kibbutz where these women uh, were kidnapped. That's where Hamas came in. They killed many people there. They slaughtered many people there. They took others hostage. I know you went inside near Oz. What did you see when you were in there? Yeah, I mean, as you see from the images, it's all still... Uh, like it was on October 7th when uh, people were slaughtered and when the gunmen finally left. This is how they left it. There's blood uh, stained still uh, on people's floors in safe rooms where they were uh, they were shot, where they were killed, uh, people kidnapped. You know, uh, I talked to, uh, uh, to Ms. Lipschitz's uh, grandson who saw her at the hospital tonight. He was flown in from a lot. That is where most of the community of Niraz has been moved to. They're basically living together uh, in a in a uh, uh, in a hotel there. Um, it, you know, these kibbutzim, uh, these kibbutzim are very close agrarian communities. This family has been there. They were part of the founding of this kibbutz back in the the early 50s, I believe. Um, so they are very, very tightly knitted together, these families. They grow up together. Uh, they live there much of, the, of their lives. And uh, they are together now in, in exile, essentially, and all waiting for word of loved ones who, who are missing, or, uh, you know, and many of whom are still being discovered as dead. Yeah, they've all been displaced from their homes. And, uh, I mean, these two more hostages now, it's a total of four who have been released by Hamas since last Friday. I mean, there's still so many other families that are, are waiting on words of their loved ones. And what our reporting is, Anderson, is that, you know, the White House has been quietly and not directly telling them, but trying to get Israel to delay this planned ground incursion into Gaza because they're worried about the hostages. They're worried about not being able to get them out. But obviously the IDF has continued its aerial strikes in Gaza. I mean, what is the latest that you've seen on the ground in Tel Aviv as far as what that response looks like militarily? And I think a couple of uh, Israeli officials have publicly said that they're not getting that message from the U.S. Of course, uh, remains to, to, to be seen. Um, look, it, the question is, does this drip, drip release of two hostages one night, two hostages several nights later, does that add to the pressure to delay? Certainly, uh, Hamas would like to see a, a delay, a, a ceasefire altogether. All uh, they are very eager to get uh, fuel supplies in there. Uh, there's a lot of humanitarian organizations who obviously would like to see a ceasefire. They want to get more uh, relief supplies coming over the, the Rafah border. Um, but, it, it, you know, look, there's more than 300,000 troops amassed on the border. It would be very hard to imagine uh, a long-term uh, ceasefire, a long-term pause, given 
the state of readiness, it appears uh, to be on the brink here. Um, but again, that's going to be a political uh, and diplomatic uh, solution uh, if there is one. Yeah, we'll see. Anderson Cooper, thank you for that. I'm joined now by former Israeli ambassador to the UK and current senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Mark Regev. Thanks you, thank you for joining me, Mr. Ambassador, uh, for, for being here. We are being told that the U.S. has advised Israel to delay its ground invasion of Gaza in order to allow for more time to get other hostages out. Is that something that the Israeli government is receptive to? So we want to get the hostages out, too. There are people. Uh, but we believe the best way to do that is to keep the pressure up on Hamas. You know, uh, this terrorist organization isn't suddenly going to become humanitarian and, and release hostages because it's the right thing to do. They're going to release hostages because they're under pressure. And so we believe uh, upgrading the pressure on Hamas, that's the military pressure, that's the diplomatic pressure on their allies and supporters abroad, that's the right way to get people out. And as we increase the pressure, uh, we'll see more people released. Well, I am hoping you could clear something up because on Saturday, the reporting was that Hamas had offered to release two hostages. They provided names. It was widely reported in the media, the regional media, at least. But the prime minister's office said that that was, I'm, I'm quoting the PMO's office now, said it was propaganda lies. Of course, we did just see these two women released today. Did Israel initially reject that offer? Can you explain what happened here? Uh, I think this is Hamas disinformation. Uh, it's not logic, logical at all to, to presuppose that Israel would refuse to accept hostages released. It's just ridiculous. Uh, it was psychological warfare. Uh, they, anyone they release will, of course, accept. And our demand is that, you know, there's more than 200 people held hostage. We don't just want one or two released. We want them all released. They should all be released unconditionally and immediately. And before they're released, uh, uh, they should all be seeing the the visited by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is asked to see the hostages. But of course, Hamas has refused that. Yeah, of course, everyone wants all of the hostages home. I spent a lot of time with their families last week. But but is Israel telling Hamas via intermediaries that Israel will only take bigger groups of hostages? Or has that changed? No, Israel's message is clear. We will keep hitting the Hamas military machine. We'll keep applying the pressure. We think First of all, one, we're going to defeat Hamas on the battlefield and destroy their military machine. But that pressure is also instrumental in, in speeding up the release of the hostages. Is it accurate that Israeli government officials said that they want all the hostages released before fuel, the delivery of fuel, is allowed into Gaza, as is being reported tonight? So fuel is a, is a difficult issue. Uh, Israel has given the green light for medicine, for water, for food. Uh, humanitarian aid for the civilian population. Obviously, we don't have a problem with that. Fuel, unfortunately, is essential for the Hamas military machine. Uh, they need it for their rockets. They need it for their underground terror network of tunnels. And uh, we understand that. And we had a documented case last week where, where fuel, I think six tankers, CNN reported, went in through the Rafah crossing with Egypt. And then that fuel, a large proportion of it, uh, and it was said, of course, the fuel's going to generators in hospitals to help save lives, and yet Hamas, at gunpoint, stole a large proportion of that fuel, and, and we presume it was diverted to their military machine. And we've said to the Americans, and, and President uh, Biden has addressed this issue publicly, yes, if, if, if supplies that are meant for the people of Gaza that are supposed to alleviate human suffering are in fact stolen by Hamas, there must be consequences. 
But is the delivery of more fuel tonight conditional on the release of all the hostages? No, at the moment, we have no interest in more fuel going to the Hamas military machine, and we have not authorized fuel. We've authorized medicine. We've authorized water. We've authorized foodstuffs. We've not authorized anything else. And we're in a state of war with Hamas, and we have no interest whatsoever in helping them uh, uh, beef up their military machine on the country. We want to destroy their military machine. So just to be clear, even if they released all the hostages, that doesn't change your mind on fuel being allowed into Gaza. Is that right? The government... The government decision is that fuel doesn't go in because it'll be stolen by Hamas and it'll be used by them to power rockets that are fired into Israel to kill our people. We've all been talking about when this ground invasion is going to occur. Of course, what's that what that is going to look like? We've heard from the U.S. that they've urged it. They've urged the Israeli government to delay it. Do you believe that a ground invasion, if it goes forward, makes the release of more hostages less likely, sir? We, we don't take a ground uh, incursion uh, lightly. First of all, there's the fate of the hostages. And secondly, we know that our young uh, soldiers going into battle, uh, it's, it'll be dangerous. I mean, Hamas has, has dug in. They've got their underground network of tunnels. They've got their booby traps. They've got their bunkers. Uh, it'll be difficult fighting. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm realistic. I know that those young soldiers going into battle uh, will face life-threatening situations, and I've, unfortunately, not all of them will come back uh, alive, and that's a sad reality. Though I was speaking to some young soldiers, and you know they're committed to this. They know it needs to be done. They know that we cannot continue to live beside this terror enclave. So in a ground incursion to Gaza, we take it very seriously. We know the risks involved, both for the hostages and for our fighting uh, men. Uh, But this has to be done. Uh, Let's be clear. Israel refuses to go back to the sort of reality of 6 a.m. on on, uh, October 7th, where we live next to this terrorist enclave and they can inflict the sort of deadly, horrific, uh, uh, gruesome violence that they inflicted upon us. We we, We refuse to live that way anymore. We will destroy Hamas's military machine. And in so doing, not only do we better protect our own people and safeguard their security, but I believe we create opportunities for a better reality for the people of Gaza, who for 16 years have lived under Hamas rule, which has only brought them hardship and suffering and and impoverishment. Yeah, well, there are still major questions, though, about what happens to the Palestinian civilians if Israel is successful. And no one has really articulated who would be in charge of Gaza if that does happen. But when you look at what happened and President Biden being in Tel Aviv last week, sitting in on that wartime cabinet meeting, how much influence does the U.S. have over when Israel does move forward with that ground invasion? Look, America is our best friend. It's our strongest ally. And in Israel, people have appreciated greatly President Biden's forthright support, and not just in his words, but in his actions. Uh, He's giving us the tools we need. He's replenishing our armaments so we have the tools we need to defeat Hamas. And by moving those two carrier groups to the region, he's shown that, you know, he wants to deter others who might see the war in Gaza as an excuse to attack Israel on another front. I mean, we have nothing but praise for, for, for President Biden. And of course, when you have a good friend, you listen to what they have to say. But Israel is a sovereign country and will make our own decisions according to our own assessment of our national security. You are a senior advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. When we hear from some, some officials or some former military officers who say that they believe he should resign 
over how this was handled, over the government's role and lack of a response, a slow response on that day. When you speak to him, I mean, does he accept responsibility, any responsibility for what happened on October 7th in terms of how the government handled that? I mean, in Israel, there's no shortage of former uh, officers and uh, they've all got their own opinions and you'll have a whole range of opinions uh, across the spectrum. Um, But I think it's clear we have to do a a serious, when this is over, yes, when we've defeated Hamas, then there's going to be, of course, an intense public conversation in Israel about lessons learned and and mistakes made. I mean, first of all, we were surprised. Intelligence didn't get in time that Hamas was going to launch this brutal, murderous attack that they did on on October 7th. I mean, they massacred us because we weren't prepared and, and there wasn't the warning. Second, we have to ask, why is it that the the fence that we'd spent so much time building and the technology and so forth, which was supposed to be an impassable barrier, that they passed it so quickly and relatively easily? And thirdly, there's a question of why did it take us so long to clear out those terrorists who who infiltrated into Israel? And it's true, there were a lot of them, over a thousand. But still, it, it took us days, as you will recall, for us to clear out our own sovereign territory from Hamas terrorists who were roaming and killing and keeping people hostage and so forth. So for all these reasons and more, we need to you know, have serious investigations. Ultimately, uh, we have to learn from our mistakes. And the only way you learn from the mistakes is by studying exactly what happened. And there will be lessons learned. But to be fair, I think the focus today has to be on winning this war. Uh, we didn't want this war. It was forced upon us. But having having been put in this situation, we will win it. We'll win it on our terms. And there's definitely going to be, when this is over, a serious process of looking at lessons that need to be learned. Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. Much appreciated. And I should note, as far as his comments there on fuel, what we here at CNN know is that no fuel has entered Gaza in these aid trucks since the war began. It's our understanding that the ambassador was referencing what we heard from an IDF spokesperson earlier, alleging that Hamas stole fuel that had already been in Gaza. Coming up on the rest of the source tonight, the kibbutz where Narit and Yoheved were abducted. It's about seven miles north of another one on the Gaza border. That's kibbutz Kisifim. I visited it this weekend. The IDF allowed a small group of foreign press inside to bear witness to the brutality that happened there. That story is next. Also ahead, an update from Gaza, where more aid trucks have arrived today, but no, it is not nearly enough for the civilians who live there. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot So far, 2,000 children have been killed in Gaza. That's according to the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health. I want to pause here before we go any farther forward because I want to let you know that what you're about to see is graphic. It's very disturbing. These are images and videos of children. In the morgues in Gaza, some of the tiny bodies that you see have names written on their limbs, which parents did so that if their children were killed, their bodies could later be identified in morgues like this one. 
And this comes as some doctors in Gaza say that they are operating on patients without using painkillers because their supplies are dwindling. And today, 20 more trucks of humanitarian aid entered Gaza through that Rafah border crossing. But the United Nations has made clear 100 per day is what would be needed for all of the civilians who were there. So far, as you just heard from that senior advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu, none of them have included fuel, given the concerns that he says that Israel has about what Hamas would do to use it for its military capabilities. But without that fuel, Gazans are running out of power tonight. And um, we are just waiting for the electricity to run out with the fuel, um, and then that will be the, the death throw of, of the health system. And without without a uh, without electricity, you know, this hospital will just be a mass grave. Joining me now is the executive director of UNICEF, Kathy Russell, and I'm so glad you're here tonight because you're hearing from these doctors, from people in Gaza who are saying, you know, without fuel, the Gaza Strip runs on fuel. Mm -hmm. And you just heard the senior advisor to the prime minister say no more fuel is going into Gaza at this time. I mean, how much of an impact does that have on the people, the civilians in Gaza? Well, I, I think in general, and the images show that, it's just such a horrible terrible situation for the people who live there. And the fuel is important for two reasons. One, because they use it for generators and the generators provide electricity or power essentially in the hospitals. So the incubators that are keeping babies alive right now depend on fuel. And at the same time, we need fuel for the humanitarian workers who are trying to do their work there and provide some support. So if they can't get around, they're really limited in what they can do. So it's just all in all a catastrophic situation on the humanitarian side and very, very worrying for us. But what happens to those those babies, preemie babies, they have to have oxygen. They have mm -hmm. to be connected to it yeah. constantly. It's not something you can just turn off for a little bit and turn back on. No, you can't. And I think for now, they're, they're managing with the teeny little bits of uh, fuel that they have left. But at some point, it will run out. And I think at that stage, um, you know, we can just imagine what happens to these children. It's, it's really... Uh, just a terrible, terrible situation for them. The concern that we heard from the advisor there was saying that if they allow fuel to get into Gaza, then it gets into Hamas's mm -hmm. hands. They steal it. They don't let it go to civilians. They instead let it go to their to their military capabilities. I mean, would the United Nations be able to monitor that? Are those concerns warranted? What do officials say about that? You know, this is the, the challenge. I think it would be hard for the United Nations certainly to monitor it. But I, I think if you step back, wars are always very difficult. You have to make trade-offs all the time. But there are humanitarian rules that apply in law, I mean, in war. And essentially, the idea is that civilians shouldn't suffer, right? That we should try to do our best to protect them. And that means making sure that they have food and water, that they have access to health care. And I think that is an obligation on all of us, regardless of the fact that we're in a war. There are wars all over the place. But at the same time, we have to make sure that civilians, and from the perspective of UNICEF, especially children, are protected because children don't start wars, right? And they're powerless to stop them, but they suffer so much in these conflicts. And I think all of us as an international community have to come together and figure out a way to make sure that they are harmed as little as possible in these situations. And part of that, I mean, UNICEF is calling for a ceasefire. They say it's needed for humanitarian purposes. You heard how carefully President Biden was talking about yeah. a ceasefire earlier today. He mentioned it and he quickly said, yeah. not, not a ceasefire. I'm saying, release all the hostages and then we can talk. Mm -hmm. Israel, though, does not seem to have any interest in moving forward with one. What happens to civilians if there is no ceasefire in Gaza? Well, first of all, 
we desperately need a humanitarian ceasefire. We, we have to be able to move supplies into these areas. They, th these children who are there don't have water, right? They don't have food. They don't have medicine. None of us can tolerate a situation like that. We have got to figure out a way that this, these hostilities can stop for some period of time so the humanitarian workers can move in and do it safely as well. I mean, we can't have humanitarian workers, you know, being killed while they're doing their work, which and unfortunately has killed. happened. Yeah. So I think there really needs to be an effort to try to make sure that there is access by humanitarians so they can save lives of children and others who are stuck in this situation. If there was one, I mean, what would that look like? Would it be for a few hours so that aid can get in, so humanitarian mm -hmm. workers can come in? I mean, what is the, the kind of... Yeah, I think it would, we'd have to obviously negotiate it and it would be challenging. And, and as you can see from the from the efforts to try to get things over the border, right, supplies in uh, through RAFA, everything is very complicated to try to do. But there has to be a commitment to say, Yes, we are in a conflict here. It's a, you know, there are very, very complicated reasons for that. But at the end of the day, we have an obligation to try to help protect innocent civilians. And again, from UNICEF's perspective, particularly children who have absolutely nothing uh, to, to sort of bring to the table in terms of responsibility, but a lot to bring to the table in terms of vulnerability yeah. and exposure. And as we see with the numbers, many children are dying. A lot of what we've seen from inside Gaza has come from, from people's videos, from their phones. Mm. I mean, there's not a, a ton of press on the ground there because it's so difficult yeah. to get inside. From what you've heard from these humanitarian workers who are in there, I mean, can you just kind of tell everyone else the snapshot of yeah. what they're seeing? I think what they're seeing is some of the imagery that you're seeing, which is that people who are desperate, they are uh, really terrified by what's happening around them. You know, you see these images of children running, trying to get away, parents carrying children. I mean, it's devastating. And we have staff who work there. I've been on calls with them. You know, they're in this very horrible situation where they're, they're there as humanitarian workers, but their ability to help is really limited. And they're also subjected to the same sorts of challenges, right, that the population is subjected to. So it's a really terrible situation. They also, you know, typically in a case like that, we would move what we call surge, sort of bring new staff in, take staff out. Can't we that. can't do any of that. So it's, it's a very difficult situation. And I think something has to change. And I think we have to really prioritize the rights and the interests of children and other innocent people who are there and kind of stuck in this absolute horrific nightmare. Kathy Russell, Executive Director of UNICEF, Thanks. thank you for coming and please tell your workers we're thinking of them. So thank much, you for Kim. sharing that tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much. Of course, the images that we have been seeing out of Gaza and Israel are deeply impacting everyone. We've heard from so many people who have been watching our coverage. For more information on how you can help these humanitarian efforts with a list of vetted organizations that are on the ground responding, including UNICEF, you can go to CNN.com impact, or you can text relief to 707070 to donate tonight. Of course, while I was on the ground in Israel, we saw evidence of the atrocities that were committed by Hamas firsthand at a kibbutz where more than a dozen people were killed. The images are haunting and so are the stories behind them. We talked to those who survived about their family members who did not. That's next. Tonight, we are learning new details about the two Israeli hostages who were just released in recent hours by Hamas. Nareed Cooper and Yeheved Leafsheets were abducted from their kibbutz along with their husbands who still remain hostages tonight. 
This war is being fought not on some remote battlefield, but in quiet communities where families previously grew their crops and raised their kids. Just yesterday, an Israeli soldier was killed and three others were injured during a raid in the area of Kibbutz Kisafim near the Gaza Strip. I was there just 24 hours before, where you can see Gaza from people's backyards. About 10 reporters were taken inside this kibbutz to see the horrific aftermath of the October 7th attack. I want to show you what we saw, but I do want to warn you that some of what you're about to see is graphic. Kibbutz Kisafim sits less than three miles away from the Gaza border, a quiet community where residents grow avocados and raise poultry and their families. But as the sun rose on Saturday, October 7th, the kibbutz that around 300 people called home became the site of a massacre as Hamas militants stormed inside and murdered 14 people, kidnapping four others. Major Marcus Sheff, a reservist in the Israel Defense Forces, watched from home as the brutal attack unfolded that day. Now he's leading a small group of foreign press into the kibbutz for the first time, wanting the world to bear witness to the atrocities firsthand. Yeah, the shock is still there. After two weeks, we've seen the damage, and yet it's still hard to, to absorb the full horror. The stench of death is thick in the air as you walk along the tree-lined streets. But if you didn't look too closely, you'd never guess that a slaughter took place here. Then you notice the bullet hole in Gina Smietich's door. The 90-year-old grandmother, who loved gardening, was in her bathroom when Hamas militants shot her in the head. Her blood is still smeared on the entryway two weeks later. If you didn't look over here, it would just look like a, a regular home on a Saturday morning. Orange juice out, the newspaper, her mail, some cookies. And when you look over here at the kitchen, you can see people have gone through it. They opened all the cabinets. There's still cups in the sink. Her kettle is still out. And Gina is one of several who was brutally murdered in her kibbutz on that Saturday morning. The Zach family lived just down the street. Parents Atai, Eddie, and their 14-year-old son, Soggy, were at home when the attack began. Their older children, Hadar and Tamer, were away. We reached 24-year-old Hadar on FaceTime. What's through there? What's, what was through that window? This is the first time he's able to see the charred remains of his family's home. Someone from the kibbutz told me that he opened the mamad and he found my dad laying on the ground with my dog just watching the doors so the terrorists won't come in. The bodies of his mother and little brother were found hugging each other in the nearby bomb shelter, where they asphyxiated after militants set their home on fire. Just days before, Soggy was dancing his heart out at a Bruno Mars concert in Tel Aviv. I'm 24, we have 10 years between us. It's hard for me to say my little brother because it was my child. Hadar and his sister Tomer are now orphans. His grief and his anger is palpable. It's kind of absurd to me that you guys show me this first and not someone from Israel, you know what I mean? I love my kibbutz, my kibbutz is amazing, but the government, I have no words to describe how to support Just 24 hours later in the Kisafim area, an IDF soldier is killed and three others wounded during a raid ahead of Israel's expected ground invasion in Gaza. An ominous warning shot of what is yet to come.
it's difficult to watch. And I do want to note that we got permission from these families to go into their homes, something that that felt invasive to be there, but was so important to them and to Hadar to be able to see his house for the first time. I want to express our gratitude for them for letting us in to see their pain and to tell their stories, as well as to Major Marcus Sheff for taking us inside that kibbutz. Of course, on October 7th, there were heroes who sprung into action that day. Among them was a retired major general in the IDF. He's here to tell his story next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, Israel is vowing to destroy Hamas after its brutal attacks across the country on October 7th. That morning, when Yair Golan, the former deputy chief of staff of the Israel Defense Forces and a former member of Israel's parliament, realized what was going on, he didn't hesitate. He put on his uniform and he ran into danger. He's reluctant to be called a hero, but he rescued several people that day from the site of the Nova Music Festival. Earlier, I talked to Yair about what he saw when he arrived on the scene as these Hamas fighters were still attacking. This is what he told me. All in all, I took out uh, six uh, guys out of the NOAA festival. And I can tell you that this, what I saw on the, on the scene was really, really, really terrible. It was a massacre. Uh, you know, dozens of dozens of terrorists uh, penetrated the, to the center of the festival and killed everyone. And those who managed to escape were really the minority, the lucky minority. Uh, it was, uh, you know, scenes that I never saw in my long history in, in the IDF. And I saw a lot. I can tell you, I saw a lot. Yeah. Um, so it was really, really terrible. Um, and then, you know, I decided to, to stay there in, in the South. And the day after, I went through a different kibbutzim, uh, you know, our special villages along the, the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. And what I saw there was, you know, again, a massacre, babies and women and old people, uh, you know, people who did nothing wrong in their life uh, were massacred brutally. Do you believe that Israel is prepared, that the IDF is prepared to go into Gaza right now? I, it's not a matter of believing. It's, ma- it's a matter of knowing. The IDF is well prepared. Uh, you know, I visited uh, last week the troops along the border. I talked to, you know, uh, tanks commander, infantry leaders, and so on. Yes, we are ready. I think that the main problem today in Israel uh, is the political echelon, unfortunately. And while it's easy to define what are the military goals of this coming campaign, 
Uh, unfortunately, it's very hard to define what are the political goals uh, of this campaign. And therefore, you know, in an in, in ideal world, uh, we would change the government before going to war. Hmm. And I think that Benjamin Netanyahu failed so terribly that, she, that, she, that he should resign uh, from his uh, position as soon as possible. I know this is all really personal for you. I think I want everyone to know two of your own sons have been mobilized. One is going to the north, one to the south. I mean, with that here, what are you, what are you thinking about that? You know, as a parent, it, it, it's terrifying. I, I was not afraid, you know, in my life for the sake of my life. And I fought a lot. Um, you know, when the adrenaline is in your blood, uh, you feel so competent. And uh, even you, when you're afraid, it doesn't paralyze you. But this anxiety to the sake of your sons, this is devastating. This is a really, it's really hard. But we have right now no other alternative. Uh, right now we need to fight Hamas and we need to be prepared, well prepared, for an opening of uh, the Northern Front, fighting against the Hezbollah. Uh, and hopefully uh, Hezbollah uh, will understand that it could be, you know, a terrible mistake for him uh, to attack Israel. What did you say to your sons when you when you recognized and realized that they would be mobilized? Well, you know, truly, we have discussed it quite a lot, and we came to the same conclusion. Right now, we have no other alternative because this is our country. We are going to protect our citizens. We are going to fight for our sovereignty. And we are going to fight for the homeland of the Jewish people and free and democratic state. And this is, you know, a good enough reason uh, to be determined and to be courageous and to be as good as possible concerning fighting for the destiny of Israel. Yeah, you're Golan. I know you've said that you don't feel like your actions that day were, were heroic, but I think a lot of other people who have heard your story, people in Israel, they feel differently. Um, I want to thank you for being here with me tonight. Thank you very, very much. Of course, what is happening in Israel has ramifications on Capitol Hill, where tonight it is day 20. Still, there is no Speaker of the House. Now, one of the new candidates has just dropped out of that race as lawmakers are meeting inside that dome there to decide who could be the next speaker. That's next. Eight House Republicans have just finished making their case to their colleagues, hoping to become the next Republican House speaker. The majority whip, Tom Emmer, is considered to be the leading candidate tonight, but he has a little bit of a Donald Trump problem. The former president claims he is staying out of the race tonight, though he did suggest maybe one candidate. 
I said, there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. <laughs> it might take a miracle for them to get a new House Speaker. Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill. Melanie, what's the latest coming out of there tonight? Well, Caitlin, someone is going to be the nominee tomorrow. But as we have seen before, that is no guarantee that that person is going to be able to win on the House floor because some of the GOP's highest profile members have been unable to get it done. Now, despite that, there are still eight candidates who are in the race. All of them made their pitch behind closed doors for the rest of the Republican conference. And at this point, Tom Emmer is seen as a potential frontrunner. He's a member of leadership. He's a House Majority Whip. He also ran the NRCC for multiple cycles. But he has had to work in recent days to tamp down expectations that he is not close enough to former President Donald Trump. So that is a potential problem for him. The other person that's in this race that we're keeping an eye on is Byron Donald. He's a Florida Republican. He's a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. He also has support from the rest of the Florida delegation, but he is only a sophomore member. And so there is a lot of skepticism about whether he is ready to step into this very big job. Yet despite being 20 days now into this crisis, there is still a lot of concern in the party that they are not going to be able to quickly unify. Let's take a listen. It's going to be very difficult. It's not good <laughs> because a lot of people are going to want to, the mindset out there, they don't want to work with uh, Democrats, but it might end up to be a point where that's the only way. We've got to get the government open. People are very angry. Well, we're going to have to figure out how to get our act together. I mean, big boys and big girls have got to quit making excuses and we just got to go get it done. And so now that the candidate forum is over, the next steps is House Republicans are going to meet behind closed doors tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And once again, they are going to try to elect a speaker nominee. It could take a couple rounds because of so many candidates still in the race. But at this point, it is unclear if and when a floor vote is going to happen. And until they do, critical issues like funding the government, aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel, all hanging in the balance. Caitlin. Indeed it is. Melanie Zanona, thank you. Amid all the chaos that we have been seeing in recent weeks, recent days, amid all the pain that we have witnessed overseas, there's something uplifting that will put a smile on your face. I'll show you that next. In these difficult times, of course, there is always hope. The hope is literally the name of Israel's national anthem. Hatikva is what it is in Hebrew. A few nights ago here, a young Canadian pianist named Kevin Chin served up some of that hope at a concert at New York City's Carnegie Hall. He surprised the audience with a performance of Hatikva. Israel's official account on social media shared the footage online, thanking Chin for playing that. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this busy night here. We'll be back tomorrow night, of course. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.